and welcome to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Hanley, and I just caught him as he tried to run out of the safe house. It's John McMahon. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't feeling very safe, Danielle, for all of your promises that we'll find a good place, that I'll I'll be taken care of, that you'll be back soon. He just had to go, something urgent came up, he'll be back soon. It's like, I don't trust you for shit. (laughs) And you'll have a present for me when I get back, and it'll be a dead-ass rat with glanders. Glander's rat. Listen, <laughs> we'll get into that later. Does, okay, I know we will, but important question first. Does Glander's rat make you more or less of a Glander's conspiracy theorist? More. 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 Okay, cool. I look this, forward to exploring this why that's the case. This motherfucker was like, <laughs> any exposure will give us Glander's. No, everyone's fine. And now here's my dead rat buddy that, like, also maybe has glanders. It's the only specimen I could get. I mean, come on. Unless you're a subscriber to our non-existent Patreon, you just missed the visual of Danielle, like, acting as if William was, like, holding a rat by the tail in Philip's face. How did he get the rat? He had to hold it by the tail. <laughs> Glanders does not exist. <laughs> we are off to a rollicking start. Danielle and I both have colds. Neither of us have COVID across yeah. several tests. No. And yet here we are. Our here dedication are. to the cause, to the motherland is here. To the KGB. As the they KGB. screamed in this episode, you're KGB! <laughs> I was like, oh my god. After all this, this is how they're going to go down. It's not. But like, Martha, TikTok, TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> what what a note to bring us into Americans season four episode six the rat directed by Kari Skogland and written by Joshua Brand and Danielle what is our rodent filled IMDb summary oh this my god week? Uh, IMDb summary for season four episode six of the Americans is Martha must finally face the truth she has denied and her life may never be the same plus. A chilling new development in William's work forces the Jennings to face the realities of what a biological war would mean. By chilling new development, they mean frozen dead rat and formaldehyde. But also, like, do they face the realities? (laughs) I think yes. I think we're on different wavelengths when it comes to William in general, and clearly we're on different glanders. Uh, Like... Vectors of infection. Um, but I actually do think it, it, there's a fundamental thing that's happening to Philip and to, Gabriel. I agree with that, but I don't know that the Jennings are facing the reality. Although I guess, like, the discussion when Henry's like, Are we going to go to Epcot? It's like, No, <laughs> going to Epcot. That was fake anyway. I've got thoughts on We're that spies. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Henry. We're spies. We're never going to Epcot. Bye. We were only going to, like, kill Paige's, like, fake daddy priest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't well, I don't like any of those words. <laughs> look, Hen- Henry's got Stan and Elizabeth has <laughs> fake daddy Victorian ghost priests. Oh. Everyone's got to have their surrogate father. Well, they, yeah, they do because their real father is a spy and gone all the time. So, and who guess who else has to have a surrogate father that they are in escalating tension with is Philip and Elizabeth with Gabriel. Agree like, for a season and a half now. Agree. Well, and I feel like 
the tension with Elizabeth is the one that's like the most, like that's the most pronounced shift with regard to Gabriel, right? Because she was like still very like on board with all of Gabriel's antics, excuse me, until very recently. Yeah. Let's get into, let's get into this. Yeah. Martha is bad, we think. Uh, <laughs> Martha has been treated badly in this episode, we think. Martha is, I mean, like, this is, this is one of the defining episodes of the Americans, right? Is that, is that a fair statement to say that, I, like, yeah. this is something that has been building, uh, in the show, in the Daniel dossier for f- three and a half seasons at this point, nearly. At least. Um, <laughs> and, like, this is the episode where, like, that reaches its particular, like, narrative climax. And I think that it's yeah. worth considering, like, the structure of the narrative, both how this episode itself is structured narratively. Yeah. Um, the, like, the flow of the scenes together, the way that, like, the Stan and Adderholt investigation of it all cuts up the flow of the Martha specific scenes where Martha's, or scenes where Martha is in them, because they're all Martha scenes. Pretty much every single scene is a Martha scene in this episode, whether she's there or not, which is notable. Yeah. But then there's also, I think, a discussion that's reminiscent of the one we had with Lily about another defining episode, which is Stingers, where Paige, Paige. confronts, um, confronts her parents and, like, We've a couple times identified how in the show there's like Paige gets a lot of like doppelgangers throughout. So yeah. whether it's Kimmy, whether it's Martha is the two most common ones, but occasionally, right, others as well, um, including Elizabeth occasionally. So there's just a lot that's happening kind of structure wise. And I think maybe that's our way into discussing Martha, discussing Allison Wright, discussing how all of the characters are affected by what Martha is going through here. Yeah, I mean, just to, one, I think that that's absolutely right, and it makes sense to structure this episode in that way. I also think that, like, the Not us structuring around the question of structure, again, again. (sighs) Rough because it's so predictable, and also, we haven't done it in a while, so I feel okay about it. (laughs) Um, We did it, like, two episodes ago. That feels like a while because it was at least two weeks since we recorded it. <laughs> more, yeah, like more, but it. like that, you know, that feels like a while in real time. Yeah, absolutely. And it will be a while in podcast time, yeah. both until people hear this episode and also between that episode and this episode. Fair. Um, no, but I think like we often, not only do we often come back to like Paige's doppelgangers, but also we often are thinking about Paige and Martha like, in relation to one another with regard to doppelgangers, right? Like, that, like, Martha is one of Paige's doppelgangers in terms of, in terms of episode structures. But then also Martha's presence and, like, her present absence, right, feels like a, a helpful way to think about all of this. And, I mean, just like you were saying, I feel like I have been predicting this since the jump. (laughs) Since Martha rolled on screen, I was like, this lady's not going to survive. And part of that is a joke, and part of it is like there is this escalating tension that's been happening over and over and over and over again. And it has felt over the last couple of episodes that, like, how could we possibly not be there yet? Right? It's been escalating for so long. and, And just, like... I basically since Clark pulled his wig off to like 
to me, that is where this stretch of episodes started, right? Where, like, we are in the end game yeah. now. And that's also what gets revealed in this episode, too. Like, that is the breaking point for Gabriel. Gabriel sort of loses his shit, and we don't see him break in and that Elizabeth. way. And, and Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, yeah. yeah. And I hadn't quite clocked that Philip was keeping that from them. Like... And I think part of it is I hadn't quite, I knew that that was a big thing that had happened, but I hadn't clocked that that hadn't been communicated. Uh, Like, because sometimes things are communicated and we don't see them, though, in this season, we're picking up basically right away, like every episode. So like, I should have, I should have caught it. But like, it's when Gabriel and then Elizabeth sort of flip on that, where I was like, oh, this is really big. So anyway, this is all just to like, co-sign your like points about structure and and bring us back to the Martha of it all, which I think is like, how how we'll get through this. Yeah, and I really like I really like that because it calls our attention to one of the structural similarities between this episode and the Stingers episode yeah. in the sense that we had a discussion with Lily about how okay, this is like the hypothetically a random episode in the middle of a season where like the defining episode of that season exists, right? Yeah. So it's not a penultimate or final right. um and nonetheless there was no better way to do it, right? It's the, it's the creator, the many creative people behind the show, yeah. right? The writing team, right? The actors, everyone involved in, in the process. Like, recognizing that things had to come to this particular pressure point at this particular moment in the narrative yeah. and doing a lot of narrative construction work around that, to your point, to yeah. make to make it work because this is a question we've gone to several times over this podcast about like, particularly around narrative structure, like what would a worse show do? Yeah. And a worse show would have rushed this. So it was the final season three or first season four episode. Yeah. Or a worse show would have dragged this out longer with Stan and Adderholt spinning their wheels, but slowly For making like discoveries more. A few episodes. More Elizabeth and Gabriel and Philip fights. And so this then happened in like the penultimate of the season. Well, one one thing on that is I was reflecting as we were saying that I was sort of reflecting on like me watching this show in 2023, which is, you know, seven or so years after. And like, I can feel myself wanting this to have happened faster, but you're absolutely right that it would have been a worse show if, if that were the case. Right. But that I think is a product of the pace at which shows move, which is a pace today, which is a pace that I'm totally fine with. And I think we sort of sometimes disagree on this, right? Like that, that is not the core of our disagreement about Marvel shows, but one of the things we certainly do disagree on. And I'm like, let's like, let's get on with it. Let's, let's, uh, let's wrap it up. Let's get, Let's get to the next big explosion scene. And like, but I'm so happy that this show is as good as it is because otherwise, like the payoff is so, it's like, it's so worthwhile and we haven't even fully gotten to the payoff yet. Or at least it doesn't feel like we've fully gotten there yet. Even the way the episode itself is structured doesn't give us the payoff immediately because it opens with Elizabeth and Philip cuddling and like a yeah. very like and a like lovey dovier scene than we've maybe ever gotten between the two of them, which is notable. Yeah. Right. And then we get Martha in her apartment 
she doesn't know it's her farewell. We as a viewer don't know it's her farewell, although that's somewhat telegraphed in the previously on the Americans um, segment that this might be a major Martha episode. Allison Wright has... So she puts the gun in her purse. Then she has this, like, wistful look around the apartment. Like, as if she's not sure she'll ever be back, even though she can't fully know that she'll never be back in that apartment again. And I just thought that was, like, a really lovely opening moment of calm, but also, like, what the fuck is happening to me that perfectly sets up the rest of the episode. I think that's absolutely right. And also it like begs the question of like, how long did it take her to realize how deep she was in? And even within this episode, we're watching those layers sort of unfurl and we're watching her discover the depth of her involvement in this thing that she sort of knows that Clark has been lying to her, but like hasn't really like, pushed on the thing he's been lying about right like yes from last season we know that she knows that he's not the position he told her he was but like there hasn't been any real clarity over what it is he's at and we see it in this episode where like it gets revealed like it's kgb right like that that is something that comes out in this episode in an explicit way and so it's it's interesting to be going through those motions with Martha in the beginning of the episode where you're, I think you're absolutely right. She's sort of like saying farewell to the apartment or like noticing all these things that like she's starting to realize are not going to be part of her life for very much longer. Whether it's like she has clocked that this is the last time she'll be in the apartment or that she realizes that like she is in deeper than she even realizes. And that's starting to like bubble up for her. That's another benefit to the show unfurling or unspooling or unfolding this story. My theory verbs there, Danielle is smiling at. Um, <laughs> like this, this, this timeline in the particular way that it has that like it A has time for her to have that moment yeah. and B like has done the build up work between her and Clark slash Philip and also her on her own that we know we can inhabit and like intuit and engage with her uh, emotional circulations in that scene. I just love all those verbs. And I know, yeah, I know. Um, do we want to talk a little bit about Philip picking her up on the street? Cause I think that's like sort of what comes, that's the next beat of this. Yeah. And, and I think kind of the thing that's <laughs> most striking about that is we spent a lot of time last season and the season talking about, Nina and Paige and Martha vis-a-vis agency and Mm -hmm. vis-a-vis, like, how their agency or lack thereof interacts with, like, structures. Yeah. And there's so many times in this episode where the show is, like, really hitting us over the head here with, if you, audience, have not been paying attention to the way that spying, politics, bureaucracy, patriarchy, on and on and on, regularize and institutionalize Mm. and normalize, like, forms of manipulation, lying, and gaslighting. Like, in this episode, we're really going to fucking hit you over the head with that from that moment when when Philip picks her up in the car, right? I have a place and everything's going to be okay. That's, like, classic, like, dude trying to 
to talk down a quote unquote hyster- hysterical woman. Yeah, I'm la- one, yes, and two, I'm laughing because like how many times this season or in the last like season and a half have we theory shipped Foucault? too <laughs> and it's like that's why like you've, God you've damn hit it. On, he got us again you've absolutely hit on like that idea of regularizing like these different processes right and like forms of like forms of power or lack of lack of full agency right like all these different things which like are the microcosm of the moment where philip's like opens the door and is like Martha like get in the car and she does right like she's ostensibly making that choice for herself but she never had a choice yeah. to make yeah and that's right, cause, like because what's the alternative if she doesn't get in that car right like, I guess that's the I guess it's where we end up at the end of the episode where she's screaming you're in the KGB and running down the street but we know that like that that woman's gonna get shot in the head pretty soon whether like the moment right after this or Nina style in a weird like execution in yeah. a basement, right? Like, Fuck. Uh, um, and again, like we, mm-hmm. we've been talking about Martha and Paige as kind of these parallels, but Martha and Nina have also always been parallels in this, in this show. Yes. And so yeah. there's a kind of I, foreshadowing happening there. And there's also, I think, an emotional resonance that's made between that opening scene in Martha's apartment and then the safe house itself. Yeah. Cause there's, there's a way in which they shoot Martha's apartment then and later in the episode when Stan and Adderholt are there. Yeah. That like visually communicates cold, unfeeling, like non familial domestic space. And that's a precisely the kind of vibes that the safe house gives off. And it's also precisely the thing that Stan and Adderholt call out both mm-hmm. while they're there and then in the conversation with Gad later, right? Like, all of this connects to each other. And, like, of course a safe house has to be cold. It has to be able to take in anyone at any moment. And it can't leave traces of the people that shouldn't exist, right? And so, like, Martha's apartment for, I would say, for much of... <clears throat> For much of this show, until we get to the part where Clark reveals himself, has operated as a kind of safe house, right? Yes, absolutely. At least for Clark or for Philip as Clark. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Exactly. And which I think also then parallels the like, the thing that's so striking to me in this episode over and over again is like, I think, and, and this isn't the first time we see it, but I think you do really see like Philip caring for Martha. That's part of what we get in the exchange with William. It's also part of what we get in the, I would call it ambivalence around sleeping with her. Although, or just like, like, and the, the fact that he sends Elizabeth home, he won't leave, even though like all of that, like the ambivalence of leaving, we're seeing the safe house of Martha break down as it is confronted with the realities of their existence. Yes, that's an important counterpoint to the, like, gaslighting structure, like, structures of patriarchy point about about Martha, and that in a different way, like, those structures are also very constraining Philip, 
Absolutely. And different in a substantially lesser extent, but still constraining him nonetheless, because he does have the genuine care that you just identified, and also is in a position such that he doesn't have or understands himself to not have any other choice but to like give her these extremely superficial faux reassurances well and i wonder too if maybe part of it is not like that it's a counterpoint but more that it like it illustrates the complicated entanglements that like these different positionalities present with regard to different structures of regulation right so like the primary structure of regulation that martha interacts with as a, you know, as a woman in the eighties is, is like, it's patriarchy. And then it's all the other ways that we, all the other like forms of oppression that intersect with patriarchy for Martha in that moment. Whereas Phillips sent like primary, uh, structure of oppression is not patriarchy though. Patriarchy does still work on him. Right. Like, but that's uh-huh. maybe a way to think about it. It's like a function of their positionalities. Yes, I think that's right. And that also illuminates one of the uh, points of like conversation that they have later in the episode, where Martha gives Philip precisely the fantasy of running away that he himself has always desired. When Martha is saying to Philip, like, we could run away, and like, you and I both know that that is not possible yeah. at all, and also that that is all that Philip has been wanting, like, from the beginning, which then, like... It cast sleeping with Elizabeth, like the scene in the earlier, in the last episode, like that last scene in the last episode, into an interesting kind of relief. Like, I don't think that it's Martha that Philip wants to run away with. It seems like it's it's often Elizabeth that he wants to run away with, though yes. that is like itself a version of the fantasy, right? Like, yes. So, yes. so there's like Martha is like operating as this kind of like, comfort object for Philip or like that. I don't know. I like, this is like by the psychoanalysis brain is like, please. Well, I'm not welcome here. (laughs) Don't worry. It's not welcome. Psychoanalysis bits coming. Don't worry. It's not welcome here. It's not just that Martha stands in for the, the, the Martha page or Martha Nina. Right. Like, but also Martha Elizabeth, like that. Yeah. Like, and as Philip and Elizabeth's relationship on the one hand seems to get stronger or at least more authentic or or like more real, I'm not I'm not exactly sure which like descriptor I would like to use. As like that starts to shift, the like the role that Martha plays in his life also shifts, but not in a like it doesn't get farther away. It, like, moves on the same path. Anyway, this is me saying, like, this is all very fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Though, I... This is this is excellent. And, I mean, the conversation with Gabriel is, I think, indicative of a number of these dynamics. Okay. Do you want to so lay some first, of them out? Yeah. Well, there's the, like, okay, Martha gets sent away. Why don't you go make some tea so the boys can talk? Right? So there's just, like, that happening. Yeah. I think it's worth noting that. Absolutely. But then there's also the Philip. Philip is also trying to 
maximize his limited, structurally limited agency vis-a-vis Martha on levels that we only fully discover in this particular episode, right? Yeah. So obviously there's the, there's the initial layer of this, which is he brings Martha to the safe house against Gabriel's explicit uh, orders, right? To like keep Martha going and try to keep getting surveillance reports on William. A, but then B, in the conversation with Gabriel, it's like his final card to play mm-hmm. is Martha has seen me without my wig, right? Several yes. times. She knows what I look, knows what I look like, which is a brilliant moment because this is what really sets Gabriel off. Yeah. First of all. B, it's something that will extremely, like, disconcert, and that's putting it lightly, Elizabeth, when Elizabeth gets here. And it deepens Philip's character because it, uh, I think, adds a layer of empathy for the audience or identification for the audience with Philip. Um, because, like, there's just this sense that, um, that Martha has seen more of him than anybody else realized. And like, that's some, that makes the situation more tragic. Absolutely. At the same time to both end it, that it makes the reveal a little bit more fucked up and like gave it an ulterior motive to reveal himself to Martha, which is both a, this is maybe a last ditch effort to save your life, but it also increases the danger to you. Well, and I think that that is the part of it that, like, I didn't quite realize when he's revealing himself to Martha. In the in the structure of the season, right, like, when he does that, it is exactly what he's saying, how he's describing it to Gabriel and Elizabeth. Like, this is because, like, she was spinning out of control. I needed a way to pull her back in. I had to do it. And also, it's like, if you think about a little bit where Philip was or where Philip gets to sort of right after that, right? Because I think it's, it's like from then where you get the spiral of, of like into like the final episode of the third season and the first episode of the, of this season where Philip is just like outside of himself, right? Or he is. He is not the version of him that we have come to know over the course of these episodes. I hadn't realized until he, uh, one, until he starts to talk to them about this, how present the ulterior motive is, I think, for him, even if it's not, like, being articulated in the series yet. And you saying it right now is like, oh yeah, like that is a hundred percent what's happening with Philip. Like he is, he's doing this, he's saying he's doing this for her, but it's always already also for him. Yes, precisely. And I love that the show contains that like complected, complex fucked up mix of like dynamics and motivations for that moment and that it then reveals them slowly. So again, this is another way in which the narrative structure of this really, really gets deployed effectively. Yeah. That, you know, like, I didn't pick that up the first time that I watched, um, that, that, no. that like, it added these additional components to, like, the protection slash danger to Martha. So the show gives that maybe enough clues that you could think that if you're a smarter TV viewer or plot viewer than I am. But will make sure you then understand several episodes down the line, yeah. right? In the next season, to your point, that um, that, that was happening as well. 
Yeah, that it sort of sticks for you in a way that like it has these it's it's like a rue, right? Like the layers sort of mm. are like always developing and there's always something there. Like more time is always better. Nice. Nice. Look at that. Look at the regular old Andy Greenwald over there. <laughs> Me and my uh, – the truth is, in, for the two of us, I am absolutely the CR, like, with wet chicken over here. <laughs> like That's extremely true. Like, <laughs> between – just for the listeners out there, John is a fucking phenomenal cook, and I, like, know how that's to make quesadillas. my hand. Yeah. I, like, that's it. <laughs> John's, like, whipping up polenta that's, like, delicious – and I'm like, uh, let's get takeout because I only know how to make quesadillas or what I made tonight, pasta. <laughs> I feel a little bit bad. I've perfected that polenta since you've had it. Like, uh, the last time I made that polenta was, like, the best polenta I've ever made or had in my life. One time I tried to make it myself and threw it out. <laughs> oh, no. Polenta is, is, a, is, is a finicky, tricky situation. I am just, like, I was telling... Tori is my little sister. Tori is a really good cook and she's like, and actually so is Caitlin. Like they're very patient and they like recipes that have multiple steps. And I'm like, if I have to use more than one pot, I'm not into it. This is why I love a quesadilla. <laughs> Fry up the vegetables in the same pan that I then make the quesadilla in one pan. That's it. Brilliant. <laughs> I don't know. What? This is actually appropriate, given, like, Gabriel's whole, let me make you an omelet. Oh like, Gabriel's God. a great cook. Attempts at reassuring Martha. I did want, I did make myself an omelet after I, after I watched this episode. <laughs> Was it soothing night? or, like, nerve, nervous making? I'm not good at making an omelet, so it wasn't. <laughs> you know what I am good at, though? Scrambled eggs. Omelets are stressful. Omelets How do you are get very the stressful. temperature right? Anyway. Fuck if I know. Well... <laughs> We'll have to consult Gabriel. <laughs> Not interested. Not since you and Lily told me that we me too him. So, no we thank did. you. Um, okay. What did you make of Elizabeth's arrival when she <laughs> reappears as Clark's sister? Question mark. I was like, this feels like the wrong move. <laughs> uh, like, it made sense that she was in costume, right? Like, it made sense that she was in a disguise and that that was who she came as. But, like... It just felt, I don't know, I think the making it so that everybody who Martha has interacted with as part of this is being revealed to be part of this just feels like a ratcheting up of stakes for someone in, in, a, in a case where someone isn't emotionally stable. Like, I don't know, it just seemed like a weird move. And it's also like Elizabeth, her best emotional self is not a soothing, comforting emotional self. And that also includes her in this character, right? Where it's like, oh, we're here for you. Gabriel's a fabulous cook. Let me just get you as drunk as I can. Let me refill this, my wine, your wine for you. Like that's, those are the modes that she has available to her. And that is, I think, consistent with your point that like, this is, this is a misreading of not that there's anything that would like soothe or comfort Martha in this yeah. moment. Um, other than Clark being like Clark Phillip being like, we're running away together and you know, whatever. <laughs> right. 
But this seems on the worst possibility side. It just was like, I feel like they don't usually make questionable moves around around this. And this felt like a questionable move. It just felt like also then it leads to the tension between Elizabeth and Philip about who's going to go home. And like, like, he's been up nights for the last X amount of days worried about Martha because he knows that she's made, right? Like he has known this now for a few days and it's like, it's, it's on Gabriel for not bringing, like this is a, this is all feels like a misstep on Gabriel. Like they know that she is like, they know that she's been found out. Even if they don't have proof, they know that she's been found out. He's been saying it like already for a couple of days. And so Elizabeth to be like, it's your turn to go home. It's like, bitch, you knew she w- he wasn't going to go home. Come on. Yeah, but there's – so I think there's two <laughs> things there. One is that I agree with you, and I think there are two things there. Yeah. And that is that first that Elizabeth was to Philip giving the false platitudes that Philip is giving to Martha, right? So this, so this episode, like, after they cuddle and are talking about Matthew Reese's nipples, uh, you know, Elizabeth, <laughs> Elizabeth gives – We got to move past it because, gives, like, I honestly couldn't. <laughs> A thing I didn't want, a thing I did not want was that. (laughs) Like, Elizabeth gives him the, like, we'll do everything we can, nothing's changed, she'll be safe. So there's, like, that false platitude moment that I think is underlying some of the tension. And then secondly, I think Elizabeth is, like, deeply and genuinely shook by the, understands and is shook by the way that Martha has seen Philip without the wig and seen Philip like take his wig off. And she understands that on the plot level of what are they going to do with Martha? Yeah. And also understands that on the level of that's of like kind of emotional intimacy that she hadn't fully recognized. Philip had initiated with Martha witness her asking a very perceptive question. Did you want her to see you that way? To which Philip only has, she needed to, I don't know, brilliant writing, brilliant acting, and that, but to those, those, like, lines. And also gets us back to, like, kind of where we started in on this part of the conversation, which is there is something that, that sort of, of like, dual purpose of revealing himself to Martha Mm -hmm. is, I don't even know if, And I wonder if this is part of what Elizabeth's question helps highlight, which I agree is, like, aggressively perceptive. Um, Yes. And it's like, oh, she's so good at her job. (laughs) Because, like, she knows how to run him. Someone's got to be. She's literally the (laughs) only one. Kind of Philip. Philip until he fell in love with Martha. Because he, like... He, because he is in love with the idea of escape, right? Like, that that's sort of, like, what's, what's at work for Philip. Even if he's never going to leave with Martha, the idea that he could not be a spy is, like, is is so attractive to him. And I think, like, that's part of what makes the the reveal actually painful for him, which is it, like, reinserts him back into that role. That's beautifully said because I think there's a relevant question that could be asked is to – does the fact that Philip had this other motivation for taking the wig off in front of Martha at all discount the 
emotional saturation of that moment. But for reasons you just articulated and a number of others, the answer is actually no. Yeah. Like they're so bound up together for him that it is like it is a deeply emotionally intimate moment. Yeah. At the same time that it is this potential like trump card to play with Gabriel, sick protection of Martha, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I also I agree, and I think it's also like I don't know that like Philip has even articulated for himself until Elizabeth forces him to, which is like the beauty of their partnership, right? That it's like yeah. that it's possible that it like exists under the surface for him. It's also possible that he is like aware of it and, and acting yes. on it. Yes. And, and it's also possible that at any given moment in the reveal that, that like neither of those things is actually like something he could articulate. Right. Like, like, there's a murkiness there, and Elizabeth is so good at reading him, which is, like, what's powerful about their partnership. Yes. <laughs> and also, something that is, I think, attractive to him about Ma- about Martha is that even though Martha is in this situation of, like, the one of the most extreme forms of manipulation possible, there's still a perceptiveness that Martha has towards Philip, not even towards Clark, but towards Philip, that I think speaks to him. And, like, so there's that, I think, emotional current happening that helps make sense of an observation you made before we started recording, which is the, uh, like, dual or mirroring or resonant nature of the sex scene with Martha in yeah. this episode and the sex that Philip has with Elizabeth at the end of the previous one. There's something really interesting about, like, about those two scenes, like, together, right? Like, one, I think we said this last time, but, like, that's a more intense sex scene than we have seen with Philip and Elizabeth. And like, there have been a couple, but like, this was really intense. And there's something, there's some, there's an intense intimacy with Martha, but it's not intense sexually in the same way, though the energy is the same. Yes. And the intensity with Martha is like, is Allison Wright's delivery of like, I want you to come inside me. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. That particular, like, the A, like, FX was cool with that line being wild, being voiced in Allison Wright's particular delivery. That's where the matching intensity yeah. with the physicality of the previous sex scene was. I think also the other thing that I was thinking about, and I, I didn't go back to watch the earlier sex scene, but the thing that came to mind during this one is like, your when they go, when they like, pan to Gabriel, who feels like he's listening downstairs, even though he's quote-unquote <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> well, your eyes are definitely closed. <laughs> Gabriel equals voyeur, question mark, goes to the dossier. It's like, is he going to go to his notebook and, like, write it down? You know, like, I don't know. It's like something Gotta to... report he, it back to the center. Something to use against Philip later. It just feels like he's always trying to collect the, like, collect them all. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that one sent me, Danielle. But when they pan to Gabriel and the... Actually, the only thing you can hear is Martha. You don't really hear Philip. Philip's... Martha's Mm -hmm. the one saying, come inside me. You don't really hear Philip, like, making a lot of noise. And usually when we get a sex scene between the two of them, it's like 
intensely physical. It's both of them. It's usually Philip doing some like gymnastics or like weird Kama Sutra position. Yeah, sex god Clark. Clark, R.I.P. Yeah, but that died with the wig coming off. (laughs) Unfortunately, not in the way that we predicted. But you know what can you do? (laughs) So there's an additional parallel between the sex scene and the previous one, which is you and both of them have Elizabeth and Martha being the one initiating and doing so like while Philip is sitting up, yeah, right, and kind of climbing on top of him and straddling him that way as they like pull their pants up or their like uh, underwear down or whatever. So there's that. And then, and then here's psychoanalysis bit number one, Danielle, which is before uh, Martha and Philip fuck in this episode, they're the conversation they have, like Phillips, it won't be long. You have to trust me. We've worked together for a long time. The admission to the KGB, right? Uh, Martha's where, where will we go is filmed in such a way that like, we actually get Philip in the mirror, Right? So we have, like, the doubling or the mirroring. Yeah. So, we, like, we could do a whole fucking Macomb thing, which I will not do, but that's my bit. I could, um, but... I know you could. <laughs> I can't. So that's why if you want to if you wanna bring Macomb no. into the cave for theory shipping, you're no. welcome to. But also, like, um, I hope fear Philip is past the mirror stage. Good God. <laughs> I hope so, too. But, but there's a certain way in which the more relevant thing is what we talked about back in episode one, which is, like, the fractured self or the, like, multiple self that can't be put back together or something like that. And the, that Philip is, like, lying and dissembling because Martha thinks that whatever is happening next is happening together, and Philip knows that that's not the case. It's like the camera can't just capture Philip. The camera has to capture the, like, refracted Philip making these false promises i love that i mean like psychoanalysis brain danielle fucking loves that no and i think like that idea of like to that high standard in my own life listen it's been a minute since like (laughs) i had to like exercise my psychoanalysis brain although that's not totally true because every once in a while in in joel ali and dave's work because dave does psychoanalysis stuff it creeps in and i have to like bring that part of me i have to unearth that part of me refract you want to know how i hoped that's how i hope that sentence was finishing oh please and this is this is perhaps a preview of things to come on the not quite great books podcast it was except for every now and then i have to psychoanalyze the challenge that's what i was hoping (laughs) that was happening in that sentence oh my god the challenge doesn't need psychoanalysis. Um, Honestly, this episode will probably come out after, if we do a challenge episode, after the challenge episode post, but whatever. Into it. No, but the last thing the last thing I'll say about the, the sex scene is that it seems, if we are, if we are so often, and I think this is related to your, your psychoanalysis point, is that it seems like if so often we are thinking about Martha as like having some kind of limited or stunted or impacted agency, right? Like vis-a-vis all of these different structures, then like this scene and the scene with Elizabeth and the, the function of them together reminds us of the ways in which like Philip's agency is also stunted, but stunted sort of from a slightly different direction, right? Like that there's something in, especially in these two scenes where like he is the one being mounted, right? He is the one like kind of being coaxed by, by a woman's body. Like there's something about that that is like tapping into something primal about him 
right? Mm, and mm-hmm. But at the same time, reminding us that, like, there is something, maybe, like, slightly broken about Philip that comes out in these scenes. Yeah. Yes. And again, like, we go back to episode one of the season where we find part of that brokenness is the murder that he commits in his childhood. And thus, once again, like... Eros and Thanatos undefeated. <laughs> I'm sorry, like the psychoanalysis bit number two. <laughs> I could like see Eros and Thanatos coming, like as though they you were all, hitchhikers on a do. on a totally flat piece of Route 66, like ten miles down the road. That like we were yeah. gonna get there, we were getting them, yeah. but like how are and we gonna guess get who's there? Always gonna fucking stop for them, me, John, jo- uh, John McMahon. <laughs> That's my guess. <laughs> ding, ding. Oh my god. Oh god. Okay. So next conversation of Clark, Philip, and Martha um is the like we'll find a good place and Martha's proposal that we could go back to the way things were. And eventually Martha's realization that like I'm never going home. Yeah. Am I? Yeah. Met with total silence. Right. Right. Because like how do you answer that? No, of course you're not going home, but we're going to keep you safe. When Philip, like, he, I think it pains Philip to lie to her, right? Like, and that yes. is something yes. we have been seeing and seeing him realize over the last, like, X amount of weeks, right? Whew, yeah. That, that like, he doesn't want to lie to her. The answer is, yeah, you're right, but it also is, like, and someone's going to put a bullet in your head, right? Like, that that's sort of the only way to go. Yeah, and this is another instance of Allison Wright managing to portray simultaneously Martha's being, like, strong and defiant and fundamentally breaking down all together. And, like, she's able to assemblage that together in a really, really wonderful way. I feel uncomfortable that you used assemblage as a verb, but it's very relevant and you feel, appropriate. You feel great about it. Too far on the Deleuze and Guattari road. <laughs> yeah, I mean, which is no steps is a, too is far a weird, for you. Is a weird, fucked up shape, but you know, sometimes but like, you got to go down it. You're like, I'm sorry, I'm sprinting down this road. Like, why? <laughs> I'm, I'm a BWO vibing down this road to nowhere. Escher, lowercase. Do you say this Escher <laughs> painting? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just vibing I'm in the Escher's Escher's too basic for a thousand plateaus. Like they want they want like some bacon shit. Like I'm lost in a bacon painting. No, but you know what they want? It's like they want Escher like put through a pasta machine run by Dolly. <laughs> like that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> with a with a bunch of drugs, they like want it through a pasta machine, and then they want to lay it out, so it's like disconnected, but still a thing. All right, if we ever want to, if we ever want to get out of academia, Danielle, you've just come up with like the economic <laughs> idea invention of a lifetime, which is the Deleuze and Guattari pasta maker. <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna consult a patent lawyer. We're gonna patent that shit, and then when the we're both just why done. <laughs> <laughs> it's like only you and me and then we have no money <laughs> I can do at least two other people who will buy a, a Guattari I, uh, Felix Guattari Boston here's machine the, here, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we might have just reached the telos of like 
our creative <laughs> partnership. <laughs> I know. And what a moment it was. I actually feel great that that was what was at the end of that particular trajectory. I hope that this is the episode my students listen to. I hope so, too. Shouts to Danielle's students. Shouts to Ruthie and Anya. Like, if you made it this far into the episode, awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Little did you know what you were getting yourself into. Sorry. I'm, I'm laughing, too, about just, like, somehow I've become the creative one in this partnership. And, like... This is what our tattoo should look like, and also a delusion pasta machine. We are the only two people who think that joke is funny. Oh no, I can think of plenty of people. I will they listen to this episode? Maybe not, but like I can think of lots of people who would laugh their fucking asses off. Producer Amy would love the That's true. Pasta Producer Amy joke. would be very into that. She would actually try to make it a thing and make us sell it, and that would be very scary. Actually, that's a that's a great point. We're gonna enlist her. She's the third business partner. Absolutely, in our, she's in our the B, listen, B, in the BWO Pasta Company. She's the business mastermind of this of this yeah. assemblage. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We just we just bring the like we just bring the billion dollar ideas like watery pasta machine. <laughs> I wish there was a market for shit like that. Anyway. I don't know where that we're gonna, came from. We're going to bring back eternal recurrence. Like that's it's going to become just a shop for like the pasta machine and whatever other future culinary uh, inventions. Does it have to be just concoct. culinary? I don't know. I think I think. Well, again, we need Amy's business mind, but like I think as an initial branding, like I, that that works for us. Well, like, you know, I guess we could like it's like that, and with Amy on board, like beyond Seder plates. <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true we can roll all these things together yeah be into it back to the america i honestly don't oh it's because you used assemblage as a verb and i got I mad i sure did i sure did anyway um, real, real trigger over yeah. here and the- <laughs> it took us to a brilliant place i have no regrets <laughs> um <laughs> And so then we have, like, the final, final scene of Martha, which is her confrontation with Gabriel. Yeah. Where's Clark? Right. Right? <laughs> Met with, can I make you something? An omelet? Which is fucking wild, Gabriel. Like, really losing his fastball here. Um, other baseball metaphors for you and producer. I, I, um, I, and Keller. Yeah, and Keller, um, and uh, CR and AG, of course. Obviously. And then, like, Martha just fucking runs for it. Just leaves i have to say i told you this before we started recording but i really thought i was like good thing philip removed that gun because like gabriel was getting shot in this episode if that gun was still like on the premises and instead martha the spy has been trained that she clocks gabriel's cane yeah on the table and is like then that's when like this plan comes together for her i think I agree. But then also the look that Gabriel gives her at the end, literally it's like daggers were coming out of this man's eyes. Martha is just like more perceptive than they give her credit for. Clark's charisma, it feels like, has been a major factor in keeping her in the dark or like giving her permission to stay in the dark, right? Mm -hmm. 
And that has just evaporated. And when he's not there, like, that just doesn't exist at all. You're telling me that Clark rizzed up Martha? That's for your students as well. Um, (laughs) I feel... Was I saying this to you the other day? I feel angry about this. Oh, maybe Tori was telling me this when she picked me up from the airport. I feel angry about this uh, slang. This being the word of the year? Hate it. No, thank you. You know who's a big fan of Riz? Regan Levitt. Well, is it because Regan has like an insane amount of Riz? Because that that's why it, she should. Well, yeah, I mean that's that's clear. She should but, like, be a big fan as, of it. <laughs> as a general like word, as a as a form of usage, as a figure of speech, just into it all the way around. I feel. Let's, let's put it this way: like I the NYT headline popped into my feed, and I immediately sent it to her, and it's like this is very relevant to your interests. Maybe it's because here's twofold. The Yankees Please. have a player, Anthony Rizzo, okay, who I wish was better than he was this past year. So it makes okay. me mad that way. But he also, ironically, lacks Riz is what you're telling me. No, he lacks the ability to hit the ball. <laughs> okay, different. But Fair. the other thing, <laughs> this is embarrassing. <laughs> Oh, no. I can't wait for this. I don't know if this was a thing. Like, was the Wiz a store that, like, you had in Colorado? I have no idea what okay, the fuck like, is. On Long Island, it was, like, a, it was like an electronic store. It was, like, where you could buy, like, a Discman back in the day. or it's Radio Shack? Like, a more, like, a little bit fancier Radio Shack, okay? It had, like, more brands. Okay. This is the embarrassing part. Now this theme song, nobody beats the whiz, ain't nobody gonna beat the whiz. <laughs> and so when I hear <laughs> All right, well we better fucking get the rights to that, because I wanna use that same tune, same melody for the pasta machine. Nobody beats the assemblage, no, ain't nobody gonna beat the assemblage. <laughs> that that's staying in. Um it That's better all fucking stay in. have to start the Patreon. <laughs> so there's something about the word Riz and it like fits into Wiz and then I'm like, nobody beats the Riz. Ain't nobody going to beat the Riz. <laughs> there might have been other lyrics, True. but I don't remember any. <laughs> That's okay. We don't need any more of them. We just need those. <laughs> okay, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, I honestly don't Another need late night recording. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, we held it together for a, a frankly impressive amount of time, uh, and then devolved into total goblin mode. So here we are. Um, what did you like? What, what what went through your mind when Martha is out here in these streets yelling, screaming about the KGB? Like, does Gabriel is Gabriel also a sniper? Literally went through my mind, and like yeah. the answer could be yes, right? Like. It could also be that, like, they have Hans watching the house, and so, like, maybe this is, like, how Hans rolls back in. Like, my my first thought was, okay, Gabriel's not going to get her, but, like, the, the, the end is near, right? Like, yeah, the end was already yeah, near, is, and now it's not going to be on Philip's terms. This is the rare, pure cliffhanger episode. Like, definitely the Americans enjoys, like, it's... Like, it's closing moments set up a dramatic, like, opening to the next episode. But this is one of the more classic cliffhangers that we get in the entirety of the Americans. I, yeah, I was, like, surprised that this is where it stopped because we don't usually get, like, a cut point like this. It much prefers an 
emotional like reckoning yeah. final scene after a major plot point yeah. than a let's stop in the middle of a major plot point. Yes, yes. And so thus, like, that's, I think, a notable structural thing. Mm. But another internal to the episode structuring dynamic that's happening is the cutting back and forth, sometimes, like, alternating scenes, but sometimes, like, concurrently cutting back and forth with Stan and Adderholt's unfurling of the Martha investigation. So how did that work for you structurally vis-a-vis the Martha is present in the as a character is present in the plot. Well, I think like the, the thing that it did for me within the episode structurally, is it like reintroduces tension that is maybe getting like, uh, released a little bit in the like, okay, well now we're in the safe house. And so like uh, the end is coming, like the, some, the turning point is coming, but there's something about the, cutting back and forth to Stan and Adderholt and then Stan, Adderholt, and Gad that, like, ratchets back up the tension because it's, like, are they going to figure it out in time to, you know, almost get to Martha or to get to Martha, right? Like, are they going to figure out these pieces? And my my gut is to say no, but I was taken back to... I think that's the season one finale where, like... Arcadi is like painting stuff on the car. <laughs> Our favorite, yeah. Right? Where it's like some. Where Lev Gorn really ascended to the astral plane of Literally. this podcast. And so, like, there's something about it, like, it, it brings in tension from a different place, even though we've kind of like gotten to this key point in the, the Martha, the Martha Clark Gabriel Elizabeth part. So uh, structurally, that's what it did for me. It, like, ratchets up tension from the outside. Yeah. I like that. And I like that in some ways it, like, disjoints or discontinues the flow of the Martha, Clark, Gabriel, Elizabeth, like, actual scenes on a scene-to-scene basis, particularly in this, like, long stretch in the... um I guess it's the final conversation between Clark and Martha. Mm-hmm. And like that gets a little bit cut up and William, like and getting the emergency signal in that conversation with Gabriel, like that's all getting cut up by this constant back and forth to the different steps of the conversation or the investigation that they're, that they're having. And I thought that that, yeah. just, that worked again to like, not let this episode happen too easily. Exactly. That's, I, I think that's a really helpful way to put it. I hadn't been thinking about it in those terms, but like, it's another, it's another way into the, like, not letting it happen too easy. I really like that. Does that mean good at their job? Like, they, they put the pieces together quickly and efficiently. And like, it only takes 20 seconds with Gad before he's like, oh, oh fuck. fuck. Yeah. And that is actually a really interesting, it's interesting in the structure of the episode, but it's also interesting because we've had this tension with Gad and Stan, right, for like this entire season. And it's like that tension has to dissipate because like Stan is good at his job. He's not saying, Gad, you're bad at your job, but he's saying we fucked up here, right? Like there's a kind of collectivizing that happens and that like allows them to proceed without tension between the three of them. And we've seen so many different forms of tension between the three of them, which I thought was like kind of the most fascinating part of all of it. 
it's an excellent point that they 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 finally come back together and like the different tensions that have existed and that started to dissipate between Stan and Adderholt, like as they've started working on the Martha thing together yeah. this season. But now Gad gets brought into the like now we are on the same page, on the same mission, and like emotionally aligned like all of us are like how the fuck did we miss this this is a gigantic fucking failure like gad is like i love i love the way that this is acted towards the end like the last gad scene that Mm -hmm. we get where like it's played like he's rueful like he has this like cosmic sense of humor about how fucked up this is um in the presentation and that's paired with Stan both like emotionally trying to reach out to Gad, which Gad immediately is like, I see what you're doing, but we know that's not true. And it's also the, well, was Gene killed because he was working with Martha or did they kill Gene to cover up for Martha? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, the, the moment where it really hit for me. And I think this is what you're describing is when Gad is like, it would have been so easy for Martha to put the pen. Like that's the thing that yep. like clicks for him. Uh, yep. I, this was also like, it, I, it felt like impeccably acted, right? Like yep. it fits really nicely within the structure of the episode. It fits also within the structure of the season, but it's also impeccably acted by the three of them. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, honestly, like, so shouts to Richard Thomas, great acting as Gad in this episode. Shouts to us for our, like, theories about how, of course, they overlooked Martha. Like, A, she's a woman. B, she's in this position they consider inferior totally. in all ways as more, like, menial labor, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I think also, like, it's it's that alongside the fact that she's part of the, like, mundane everydayness Perfect. of the office, which is, like, partly because she's a woman and she's a secretary, et cetera, et cetera. And also partly because she's like engaging in these tasks that are that they don't deem to be like important enough to think about, which is is not only a function of her being a woman. And so like, yeah, you're like, you're absolutely right. They've over like patriarchy has allowed them to overlook her. Wow. Okay. I, I think that's. The main discussion, right? I, I don't have more to add. No, I think we, I think we've gotten through it. Like, ah, uh, what a great episode. <laughs> What a great episode. Let's get into the segments. Let's do that. All right, Danielle, where are we starting in glass? Sorry, uh, I fucked it up. (laughs) Three, two, one. Danielle, what is in the dossier this week? It's momentous dossier, or is it not? I mean, it is and it isn't. It's a true both end because the thing in the dossier is how is Martha still not dead? Like, this is the episode (laughs) where Martha should have died. And how is she still not dead? Which is honestly wild, although I guess I'm excited to see how they finally do it. It better happen next week or I'm going to throw something. Yeah. So that is, like, the first thing in the dossier. I would also like to, like, put out there, we didn't have any Victorian ghosts in this episode, and I'm happy about it. So I just wanted to, like, <laughs> put that in the dossier. <laughs> Great. I'm not sure that's quite where it belongs, but... Um, just, like... Yeah. Do you... So, uh, any further specification to your Martha dossier? Like, how how this is going to happen? I know you did a little speculating in the main discussion as well. Yeah, I mean, I sort of think that... I think that... There was a moment in this episode where Philip was going to have a say over how it happened, but I think the reveal that he told Martha, like he showed himself to Martha 
weeks ago, right? And he's like, well, you know, like a little while. And they're like, are you kidding me? Like, this was not the first thing you said. And it's like, this has been going on for a really long time. She's like been yeah. in, at, like, did he just not tell them that she's been at his place? Like, what? Anyway. I think, I think they knew that, or at least Elizabeth knew that. Yeah. But I'm not sure that they knew. Obviously, they, they didn't, didn't know, know that why. he was de-wigged. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um... I think the end of the episode to me is that Philip no longer has a say, but I think that was probably secured when he tells them. My sense is that it's going to be like something parallel to Nina, where it's going to be a bullet in the head from the back so that she's not suspecting it. No comment, but there... And as we've thought about, like, what characters are mirrors or doppelgangers of one another, like, that would be a fitting ending if that were the case. That's my prediction. Any glanders or other this new disease predictions? Glanders does not exist. (laughs) Maybe the new disease does. Maybe the new disease is actually, like, a cold, and glanders is just fake. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Glad we had that on record. And that brings us actually brilliantly into the opening of Gloss this week, where we should talk about William because, oh, Danielle is, Danielle is waving, is pantomiming, waving a dead rat around. William both, (laughs) both gives us the title of this episode and much like Stingers, again, like a kind of fake out. Yeah. um, But not, Exactly. Less of a fake out than Stinger's um, title to the episode, which we'll get to. But more importantly, I think that the final catalyst for Philip's decision to, like, force Gabriel's hand and force the center's hand with regards to Martha is this conversation he has with William, right? Where, like, Philip is, A, confiding in William. Yeah. and William gives this, like, it eats you up inside what we do. And the bosses just don't know or don't understand. And, like, it's like he needed an external person that was neither Elizabeth nor Gabriel to confirm what he always wanted to do all along, which is, like, finally force the hand and get Martha out of there. But this also then retroactively has, like, set up the we are, like, presenting a fait accompli with regards to Elizabeth being in Berlin with Paige, like that was the dry run for how much can we force Gabriel's hand without him knowing. So can I offer uh, not a counterpoint, but like an additional way to read the yes, William please. stuff? I mean, I think like it is a, a another instance of Philip developing an inappropriate relationship with a Mark, right? Like, <sighs> yeah, right. Like, there is something I, – I hesitate to say the word parallel because I feel like we've said parallel and mirror like 85 times in this episode. But there is a parallel. Just another episode of the Not Quite Great Books TV podcast. Casual, assemblage, parallel, both and, always already. Collect them all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think like there is – as you were laying out like confiding in William, it's like – well, it feels a little bit like the way that Philip and Martha's or Clark and Martha's relationship developed, right? Like it suddenly became something more and something that he like both could not and also like was not willing to like limit. And like there's something about the William relationship where there's that creep 
also that creeping in. Yeah. But also, like, there's something there about the way, and this is not the same, but, like, Philip's relationship with Sandy feels feels sort of of a similar piece. And so I think, to me, it begs the question of, like, where is this going to lead us, right? This is a, this seems like a fatal flaw for a spy. Yeah. I mean, it's also Annalise. It's also the person that works for the contractor that was helping to make parts to the stealth airplane. Like, this is, this is a pattern for Philip, which again speaks to, as you pointed out, his desire to run away, his desire for some kind of different life, his desire for there to be something more like genuine meaning in what he was doing um, or connection with others or something, something like that. William, of course, gives us the eponymous rat. Um, which I just was fucking hilarious to me. Like, just LOL, handing him the glass with the dead-ass rat. But also, like, in an episode where, as you just predicted, like, Martha's de- death is imminent, yeah. more so than it ever has been for three and Not a half. Not just me hoping. Uh, <laughs> hoping, predicting, you know, all of the above. Same thing. Um, and, like, dead rats, like... I think foreshadowing anyone like, you know, (laughs) heavy handed foreshadowing LOL slash oof is correct. When John and I were outlining this episode and John's like, Oh, the rat, that's like what William gives to Philip. I was like, Oh wow. I had not put that together as the name of the episode because also like, it feels like there's the, the Martha of it all is like, but and now there's also this physical specimen, which we will come back to in a moment. <laughs> sure will. And this is a classic. The Americans were going to do the, like, classic high politics mixed in with the interpersonal so much that, like, in this momentous episode vis-a-vis Martha, we also get this, like, very explicit conversation between Gabriel and Philip, and then a version of between Philip and William about, like, oh, we need the biological weapons, because if they take out our nuclear capacity with the first strike, we have no other way than this to defend ourselves. And it's like, oh my god, this is just fucked up beyond belief. Well, and also it's just, like, the ease with which they slip into talking about that, right? Which is, of course, like, part of their relationship is is, is like quote unquote business, but there's something about that that feels emblematic of like the middle of the Cold War. Absolutely. Like we're just mo- we're just shifting very quickly from nuclear holocaust into like biological weapons, and we're we're like sort of shoulder shrugging about it and moving on. I also loved the like counter surveillance setup that they have for this meeting between William and Philip, <laughs> like with Hans, like up above, they're at the docks <laughs> and he has this little pocket mirror to like signal Elizabeth and Elizabeth is waiting for the bus slash smoking a cig, yeah. which is all actually her signal that she's relaying from Hans. It was a cool setup. It was like a great use of space, like good camera work. Well, and I also feel like there was something I agree, and it was like a very quick here's some spycraft stuff, and not like the big set pieces. Like I'm thinking about them like rolling out, like Philip rolling out of the car when they've like been made. Like this is earlier, like last season, right? It isn't that like big stuff, but it's like it's it's uh, quieter, but. It's also quite clever, and I just appreciated that. And we get more Hans, and we we all love our favorite. We love Hans. Hans. 
he's getting better at his job, maybe. Just to play off the kind of domestic, domesticity <laughs> themes, familial themes of this, Elizabeth, like, cooking Korean food and tofu um, in for Paige and Henry. And, like, Paige, extremely suspicious of what's happening, is skeptical. Henry's kind of into it, into the idea. Henry is just, like, oblivious. Anytime he's not with Stan, he's like, people live here? What's happening? And Paige being skeptical is, like, right on the money because she's like, this lady only doesn't even know how to make tuna noodle casserole, and now she's making tofu? Like, I'm sorry. Like, what what weird spy thing are you training for? And, like, right on, Paige. Right fucking on. Yeah. Only only Paige can make tuna noodle yeah, casserole. Exactly. As we determined with Lily last week. Yeah, and I mean this is it's a it, it's a scene that I think is telling and, and I did wonder thinking about the episode that in an episode where Elizabeth is like, Oh, Philip's connection with this agent was deeper than I ever realized or thought about um beforehand. Like Elizabeth is reaching for that, yeah. right, with her friend-slash-person that she's running, with her friend-slash-Mark, right? Yeah. And, like, she's maybe trying to, like, when when she's skeptical about Philip's connection with somebody else, she reaches then to her friend to, like, draw on that, on that tether. Yeah, it's, I it's, uh, I think that's absolutely right. There it's is, like an overcompensating. It's exactly the language I was going to use. It feels like she's overcompensating. And like, it's interesting that Paige kind of picks up on it without quite knowing exactly what she's, like, what the overcompensation is for or what, or yeah. what it is. Yeah. I thought, I thought our discussion with Lily last week about Young He was very good. Oh, absolutely. Um, I also like to point out in this scene that there's like, Danielle's not gonna love this, but I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go. I with know it. that there's like, something here that that I'm not gonna like. John has not told me what it is. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So Henry like will not let us as an audience, nor will he let Philip and Paige forget about Epcot. And I would just like to point out that my theory that Epcot is like the empty signifier for like the the, <laughs> the dream that cannot be fulfilled, um, and that like it's oh perpetually kind of un, uh, like unconsummated, like that dream of the happy familial space that gets held like in a Winnicottian holding space by the by the uh, symbolic realm of Epcot continues to persist. Counter. I just tried to add counter, in extra layers. Counter. Please. Henry is cruelly optimistic about the possibility Oof. of Epcot. Bam. Oh. Lauren Berlant, baby. The holding stuff makes sense. I, I don't know that that is like what's at work here, but I like don't I don't hate Winnicott. I missed the whole Winnicott moment in political theory. You resisted my reading of Epcot. Um, still resisting. From several episodes ago, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to do so again. Uh, yep. No, still still resisting it, uh, but less more annoyed about that than the Winnicott of it all. <laughs> Fair. Um, we also get this one-off scene between Olya and Tatiana and Arkady, um, in the KGB, like, some mirroring about, like, who's going in their KGB's yeah. version of the vault, and we actually see Arkady, like, flip the switch to, like, be like, meeting is in session, no one bother us, we're putting into effect whatever security measures are existing, and they talk about this need to, like, exfiltrate her immediately yeah. and we get a very and i love the like i obviously these are some of our favorite characters and i love that they brought them in 
not just for the hell of it though, but to give us as the audience the crucial information, like where are we taking her? The Moscow? Yeah. Like we're taking her to Moscow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the other part of this scene that like when Tatiana was like had this look like, should you be here? To Oleg. When Oleg is like <laughs> kind of like inappropriately like pouring his heart out and Tiana's like, is this okay? It was a very yeah. it was like all of the ways that I feel about Philip and his relationship to all of these different like marks or all the different like people that he's working it's like should this be happening and tatiana had that all over her face yeah and i think it's notable that we get the entree to that scene is Oya talking about his mom yeah absolutely right? absolutely and for all the like familial what are the emotional circulations like what yeah. are the connections between people that that is this entire episode is about i think yeah that's that's absolutely right the but also it's like the to moscow of it all is like well She's not going to Moscow. Like, we all know that, right? <laughs> or, or some of us are willfully ignorant about that? I don't know. Mm, It'll be interesting to see whether or not we get another one of those um, illicit meetings where Philip, like, rolls into the magazine place and Arkady is just like, like, I wonder what the fallout of the, what the fallout of the... Martha death is going to look like is I'm like fascinated by that. No comment. Last thing in glass that I think is worth pointing out is that like, obviously our, our favorite segment um, whose name we know lots of things about is Bard Nostalgia for the unremembered eighties. Zero things. But like this safe house is not in the eighties, but like stuck in the fifties or sixties. And I'm wondering a, if you got that, that vibe from it and whether you did or not, like what, we might do with that observation. I didn't necessarily get that vibe because there's just like a coldness to the safe house that like is hard for me to get beyond. But I, I wonder if they'll stick with me on this, on this thought, thought path. Okay. I'm I'm going with you on this journey. What is this? The Deleuze road again? No, 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 no. no. Just like weird Danielle thoughts at 10 Oh five PM, which is, why why are we still awake? <laughs> Half an hour past my bedtime. <laughs> I want to be very clear. I wonder if part of it, right, is like the 50s and the 60s, like with regard to the Cold War, was a really specific time, right? And like a – it's obviously a different time for Philip and Elizabeth, but it's it's like – it represents a different moment in the war than I think the moment in the 80s that they are in now. And I wonder if, like, there's part of that that is, like, present here. Um, just, like, I, yeah, I don't know. That's, like, sort of where my brain went. What are you thinking about it? You got me thinking about so many things. So I'll just pick two of them. Number one is that I like that call. So I was Googling um, and I forgot to mute my mic. So people heard me typing. Duck and cover civil defense film and like uh, birth the turtle is like 51, 52. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. Well, I'll send you a YouTube link for when we're done. Birth the turtle. Um, (laughs) Birth the turtle. The like duck and cover to like cartoon turtle that's like meant to say to save yourself from the nuclear attack. I mean, duck and cover were drills that we had to do in first grade. I do remember that. And I was in first grade in 
in 90. So anyway, there's a, there's a whole t- animated turtle to make this palatable for kids. Okay. Um, which is exciting. And anyway, that's 51, 52. And given the like talk of nuclear war mm-hmm. that happens in this episode, there actually is this circularity too, just as like the 51, 52 of it all, the like maybe nuclear war is going to happen and here school children is what you need to do. Yeah. Like there's a circularity to that with like the increased tensions under Reagan. So that's the oh, one direction that yeah. my brains go. Okay. In. And then the other direction is actually not about the Cold War, but about like the gendered emotionality of like patriarchal relations mm-hmm. that we think of like the you pointed out that this is a cold house. And when I think of like the fifties, sixties with regards to like cishat gender relations and emotions, yeah. it's like Mad Men style coldness. Oh, um, of, okay. Like Don and Betty Draper. Um never and, seen like it. that sort of famously. Um <laughs> And so, like, I think that I think that that might also be being recalled, given our discussions about like the patriarchal yeah. uh, shaping of what's happening to Martha. Yeah, I, I both of the. I, I feel like every episode, I like am amazed at how much knowledge about the Cold War that you have. One, which isn't surprising to me, given who you are and your interests, but like always surprising in general. Um, but two, so that the point about like. 50s, 60s, and then Reagan makes sense to me. And then, like, thinking about the sort of, like, emotional circulations or, like, the the affective economy of... Oh, you love to see it. Always. The, love to feel it. <laughs> the affective economy of the safe house as, like, as doing a kind of anchoring, right? And anchoring in that yeah. particular that kind of moment feels feels important. Yeah. We'll have to talk to Keller about Bert the Turtle. Um speaking of Cold War knowledge and no, I'm just John, I'm just kidding. We know you weren't alive in fifty one <laughs> or fifty two. He wishes he was though. <laughs> just for like Whatever. John in spirit, John Keller is younger than I am. Oh. Agree. Fully yeah. agree on that one. Strongly agree. Set quick sound design note on the safe house, though, is that it's a little obvious, it's a little on the nose, but I'm here for it, that as Martha is, like, told to go make tea for herself, we get the sound of, like, the tea kettle coming to a boil and the whistle as the scene between Philip and Gabriel escalates in tension between them. So it's just like literally on the nose, like tension coming to a head, like the situation is coming to a boil, like all of those, like they actually did it. They like did it in the sound design. You know what? They're not usually so on the nose. So I think we'll give it to them. I give it, I, you got to hand it to them. We are handing it. All right. Bar nostalgia for the unremembered 80s. I feel like the first thing is like the first thing we get in the episode or like the first big 80s thing in the episode is the Today Show episode that Martha is watching that she turns off before she leaves her house, which is like, I don't need to be married anymore. It's like a real like women's empowerment, like break down the like heteronormativity of marriage, blah, blah. Which I'm, like, rolling my eyes about, but also sort of fits into the bigger themes of the episode. It sure does. And I think another kind of key early moment of the 80s in this episode is the just, like, FBI sexism <laughs> on full display between uh, between Stan and Adderholt here. Yeah. The, like, do you find Martha attractive? There's something sexy about her. Um 
Amador got murdered by this, like, femme fatale who's just secretly sexy that's happening. But then, like, there's the only child, but never married. But then we also get this, like, reveal that Martha had an abortion in 64. Like, and they say, like, when it was dangerous and illegal. And that was, like, yeah. such a telling. So Adderhold, I believe, says it's dangerous and then stands, like, and it was illegal, right? Which is, like, so telling yeah. of their of the two of their personalities and, like, their Correct. relationships to Martha. Martha's got a, like, little brooch happening um, when Philip accosts her on the street and brings her into the safe house. It just seemed extremely 80s to me and also in keeping with uh, some Martha brooches of, of Americans past. Listen, Martha is, like, quintessential 80s style, so this tracks. Absolutely. The next thing on the list, I just want the listeners to know, is Elizabeth, <laughs> and then it's just question marks, so it's like, I don't know what it is, and I'm on the edge of my seat. I would really, I, like, John, what? Oh, I have no idea. I thought this was a you thing. I thought that you had an Elizabeth thing you wanted to put in the 80s. No. Oh, no, I did. I got it. Okay, now I remember. Uh, Elizabeth that has... In. <laughs> Fair. Um, that's like the revenge for the pasta machine and the Winnicott. Um, uh, <laughs> it's like Elizabeth's get up as quote unquote Clark's sister okay. is just like oh a very particular kind of 80s. And I know we commented on this in the past when she's shown up in that disguise before, but every time it appears, it bears mentioning. So you know how like elementary school teachers there's like that that particular flavor of elementary school teacher who like is dressing of the decade earlier than it is sure right like uh-huh. so i so i had multiple teachers in elementary school who wore that fashion but like i was in third like my third grade teacher ms spiegel who i loved that's exactly what she wore but it was 1993 <laughs> So, like, okay. it's, like, a decade late, but it's, like, I, like the outfit that Elizabeth is wearing, every time she appears as Clark's sister, there's something about the haircut and the glasses and the shoulder pads and the, like, the, like, weird, like, silk chiffon polyester of it all, which just, yeah. like, feels like elementary school teacher to me. Amazing. In the Midwest, there's something about this disguise, this character, that also just screams the Midwest I think that's right. Me. I think that's right, too. I am not from the Midwest. <laughs> you, Daniel isn't sure where the Midwest is. Um, okay, also in our nostalgia <laughs> terms, uh, the, like, yep, that's right. Um, <laughs> The, like, surprise and shock at tofu and, like, this chicken is so rubbery. Like, tofu jokes and, like, novelty of tofu scans is extremely 80s to me. To be fair, every time someone mentions eating tofu, I still feel like that today. Fair. So in that particular moment of her life, Danielle is giving the 80s. Always. Always. I'm like, why? Just eat chickpeas. They're more enjoyable. I I most of the time I agree with you. Okay. I'll take that. Listen, that feels like okay, high Dan- praise. Danielle, we've come to a pinnacle of the episode. I'm clearing the floor <laughs> for you to finish out this segment of Bar of Nostalgia and to begin minor character. Like I'm on mute, I'm gonna go get another seltzer. Like it's it's all you. Listen, there is something about <laughs> William giving the rat to Philip 
that just feels like it is so 80s. Like, it feels like in 2023, if you wanted a sample from a lab that was, like, testing rats for COVID, you would have to, like, prison break, Mission Impossible style, like, laser your way into some crazy room and, like, you know, huh. like, entrapment, like, limbo through laser wires to get uh, to get a specimen William rolls in with a full fucking rat in a jar. He's like, got it. Like, first of all, that rat was not in the jar when it got thrown out. That rat was straight up in a trash can. Okay. So this motherfucker is picking through, and I, with heavy air quotes, glanders, trash cans okay a minute ago he's so afraid of glanders now he's just like oh there's some rats here look at my rat and he's shoving a rat in a jar and he's like i got you that specimen you needed like there's something so 80s about the lack of security around garbage and like i don't know this is the most 80s thing i've ever seen before in my whole entire life (laughs) No notes. I'm just dumbfounded. I'm in shock. I'm in shock and in awe. I just don't understand how you don't think this is the most 80s thing ever in the entire world. Where's the security? Not the security. Around the, the like, biohazard Danielle. weapon rats. I'm sorry to rat-splain to you, but... <laughs> Are you a rat? <laughs> Are you a rat in disguise? Are you going to unzip your skin suit and then there's just a rat? That's why me and Larry get along so well. This brings me to the minor character of the week. Please. Which is also the rat. (laughs) Continue. What what a show for this rat. Like, R.I.P. I'm assuming this was a prop, but, like, R.I.P. That rat looked too real. I don't know. Like, the props are nuts. Like, that rat literally looked like it did come from a lab. Also, like, are rats... From from a trash can in the lab. Show some... Put some respect on the From a dumpster outside the back of a lab. Because how... Glanders... William is, is just, like, digging through that dumpster looking for those dead rats. The rat is the minor character of the week, one, because we don't really have any others, and two, because, like, it reveals how crazy the idea of glanders and this other bio-weapon even are. Congratulations, Mr. Rat, for being minor character of the week. (laughs) You lived a probably not a long life and probably not a good life, but I hope you got some treats out Mm -hmm. of it. I hope so, too. I hope, like, like IMDb production notes uh, scan, I didn't see anything about the rat. But, like, now I think I want an alternate universe where, like, we flash back to, like, the 60s and Elizabeth and Philip were, like, organizing, like, fucking unions and, like, had many, 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 like, of the inflatable rats um, to uh, shame uh, businesses. So you know the episode of The Watch where Chris and Andy were, like, lessons in chemistry, what a trash show. And then they yeah, like uh-huh. one of my faves. Uh, they're not wrong about that, <laughs> but also like where they're like, "Why are we getting an episode from the perspective of this dog?" 
I want an episode from the perspective of the rat. How is the rat seeing Philip and William? What? How was the rat's journey from testing into the garbage can? <laughs> Dan- Danielle, you've not yet watched the next episode of The Americans. How do you not know <laughs> that the next episode of The Americans is that it's from the rat's perspective. We flash back to the lab. It catches back up with the current timeline. And from the dead rat's perspective, we see Philip come back to the safe house in the climactic confrontation between Martha and whatever happens to Martha. You don't know that's not what's going to happen. And it is revealed that Glanders is fake. <laughs> the, the the rat is the mechanism for that reveal end scene <laughs> no notes great well look we're, we're inventing pasta machines we're rewriting episodes of the americans we're giving these ideas away for bottle free. episode rat perspective <laughs> literally bottle episode <laughs> literally inside <laughs> That's the best joke you've made all night. I'm dead. I died. I oh, stay no. dead. Like the oh, rat. What's happening? <laughs> all right, we got to go to the cave. Another place Oof. where there were probably rats. Yeah, probably. Uh. Lots of them. Um, all right, we're in Plato season. Danielle indulged me. I was talking with a student about the Republic today. Um, and specifically one particular passage. So I'm going to read that passage, and that's what we're going to do for Plato season. Danielle, you, you're still cool with this plan? Love it. All right, Danielle, we're in everyone's favorite. We're in book five. I think that's your favorite. Yeah. Do I, remember, do I have that correct? <gasps> yeah. I'll, I'll say the Please, yes. go ahead. No, I think book five. We're in 473... D. Okay. Unless, Socrates said, the philosophers rule as kings, or those now called kings and chiefs, genuinely and adequately philosophize, and political power and philosophy coincide in the same place, while their many natures now making their way to either apart from the other are by necessity excluded, there is no rest from ills for the city, my dear Glaucon, nor I think for humankind, nor will the regime we have now described in speech ever come forth from nature insofar as possible and see the light of the sun. A great quote. The minute you said 473, I was like, I know where we are. <laughs> yep. I have no doubt about that. <laughs> yeah. Like the, like for this to be real, philosophers have to be kings and kings have to be philosophers, right? Like, at, which is also revealing to us how, like, impossible such a scenario is, which is like, I think the heart of so much of the Republic and also the place where so many people misread the Republic, right? As like trying to think through like, oh, this is a blueprint. And it's like Socrates over and over is like, this is a city in speech. And it's like nearly impossible. I think book five is the place where the impossibility of this, it like, and and the, the ideal part of it like really yeah. comes to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. How are you thinking about this in relation to this episode though? I'm interested. Um, in what, let me start elsewhere and hopefully I'll work my way yeah. to that. So like the, the context for this with the student I was talking with shouts to Cooper, um, is, uh, the, the use or Bloom's use of coincide yeah. to translate whatever that Greek verb is, um, which I've always found very interesting. And like, I always ask my students what they think that verb coincide is doing. Um, in that particular very long sentence. But then B, I was like kind of uh, giving the students some like hints of like the a bad 
version, which is the version I know of the Straussian reading of the Republic. And, um, you know, it's really like playing up, like amplifying the impossibility thing that you were talking about. Yeah. But in terms of the Americans, I don't know. I think there's something like, I'm, I'm going to go totally different from politics and philosophy and say like spy craft and like ethical human relationships. Mm-hmm. Like those Philip would like to make coincide much like Socrates maybe wants philosophy and politics to coincide in the city that maybe can, would exist, but probably can't. And like likewise for Philip, there is a desire to like reconcile different, um, realms of life that are fundamentally irreconcilable. And actually the pursuit of them leads to a bunch of really fucked up consequences for people, a la, like, eugenics and shit and shit in Calipolis. I don't know. No, I like that. <laughs> Sorry. As you were talking, I was looking up the... I don't, my Greek is not good enough to know this word in Greek, but the Perseus translation, which I believe is... Um, Perseus doesn't use uh the bloom it's not the bloom translation it's like it's a different translator and the word that they use is conjunction and i think like this speaks to precisely the point that you're making which is that there's something less agentic about conjunction there's something a little bit Mm. more coincides feels more pointed Right, which I think gets back to the Straussian reading that you're offering. Like, I think there's something there. I don't know. That's like yeah. where my brain was, but also that like the like political science, my, the the tiny part of my brain that thinks like a political scientist and not a political theorist Please. is like puzzling over the ways in which the coinciding or the conjunction is used to justify like all of these other things like that second part of what you were saying and so the like causation correlation like thing is pinging and it's like you can't i think one of the things that's so interesting like to bring it back a little bit to the americans one of the things that's so interesting about thinking about this particular um, excerpt alongside everything that's going on, especially with Philip and Martha, is that like, we, you can't really identify the causal thread, right? Like, everything is so wound up together that like, it's hard to point out where one dynamic starts and the other ends. Like, it, and like, where Philip is making a conscious choice to reveal himself to Martha in hopes that this will be like his way out or Mm -hmm. the choice is, is like is conscious only because he's trying to like save face in that moment. Like thinking, thinking about like a, a, a more thinking more short term as, as opposed to long term. And so like, there's something about the murkiness of the, causation correlation debate that like seems to map onto that. I don't know. Yeah. And I, I think an additional dimension I would offer is, you know, one of the common ways that I talk about the Republic with students is thinking about parts and wholes or about individuals and collectives, right? Because Plato is giving us a much more like organistic notion mm-hmm. without like some of the like Arist- Aristotelian, yeah. you know, naturalism, but like a focus on the whole of the city, right? And what are the constituent parts yeah. that have to be in right relationship with one another? And there's 
there's something about like Philip constantly trying to assemble the different parts together, but it's actually a like it's an it's a true impossibility for the various parts of his life or to like be super fucking platonic about it. There is a structural impossibility for Philip to order his soul in the proper way that he would like. Well, I think right that this like it brings up precisely I think the tension that I think, again, is at the heart of, of the Republic, or at least at the heart of my reading of the Republic, which is that, like, is there... Obviously, Socrates is of the mind that there is a right ordering, a, a right ordering yes. of the soul, a right ordering of the city. But I think it raises the question for us, is there such thing as a right ordering of something? Like, and I think Philip is... Like, he's of two minds about this, right? KGB agent Philip knows that there's one way that they're working for the world to be. And human, empathic Philip, or empathetic Philip, is like, I want... I want to exist in the world as I want to exist. And those things are fundamentally intention, like, for Philip. And so that question of, like, is the way the KGB wants the world to be the right ordering of the world? And is there something wrong with the way that Philip wants to exist? Or does does is is right only in the eye of the beholder. Obviously, Socrates doesn't think right is only in the eye of the beholder. He thinks that, like, you know, telos, blah, 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 blah. But, like, I think it raises the question of, like, this is how we think the world should be. Is this how the world should be? Like, that, to me, is, like, one of the fundamental questions that the Republic raises for people who read it, not that Socrates necessarily raises for himself. That's fucking <laughs> I don't know can about I segue, that. Can I segue from there into theory? Go for it. <laughs> so let's go to theory ship. And I actually would like to pick up on that precise point, which I did not, I promise was not at all planned in part because I'm not smart enough about the Republic to see that connection in advance. Um, but Danielle is smart enough to set up that connection. Okay. Um, and I don't know what John's theory ship is. Cause they're like, yeah, I don't know what it is. So it's I I'm gonna theory ship James Scott in seeing like a state to William who already gets it on some level. Like in that initial conversation with Philip, William is like very, very clear about the ways that there is a fundamental impossibility of perception for the KGB state apparatus to understand like particulars or understand relationships or understand how people act against structures that exist. Mm -hmm. And so William gets it, but I think would enjoy thus seeing like a state. Meanwhile, Gabriel needs to read seeing like yeah. a state to be reminded <laughs> that like, maybe he doesn't quite know everything, the fuck that is happening. And like his, people that he understands himself to be exercising political power and control over are going to act in unpredictable ways to try to fuck up that those attempts to assert power. 
That's my James Scott theory shit. I feel like we should give Gabriel oh, feeling shit. like a state. This is I wasn't thinking about this, but I, I have it because Joel recommended that we look at it for our stuff. But I wonder if like the so the I haven't read it, but the subtitle is Desire, Denial, and the Recasting of Authority, which feels also like something we could give Gabriel to read. Um yep, absolutely. And who's the author on feeling Davina like a state? Cooper. Okay. I, I, like, owned it, and then Joel said that we should read it, and I was like, well, I should bring it home, and then promptly did not look at it. (laughs) But there's also a secret theory ship that you have on here that I would... Yeah, do you you have a theory ship? No, I... Do you like to offer us? I would say that my theory ship is is feeling like a state for Gabriel. That's, that's like, as far as I've gotten. Mine's not a theory ship, but, like, ultimately it's, it's a theory ship at heart, and that is, Danielle, what character are you going to theory ship Saltburn to? Ugh. I, I feel like the obvious choice is, is like, either Philip or Martha, because, like, they would most identify with it, like, in their in their sex god Kama Sutra phase, right? That, okay. That feels like it. Like, I do feel like there's something about Martha where I could see her, like, licking the bathtub full of of Clark's sperm. Like, I really could 100% see that. Um, uh-huh. I have some follow-up questions, but continue. The vampire scene also feels like a scene that they have, like, played out in their lives. <laughs> Is that what we're calling it? The vampire scene? I didn't know that. When he's like, I'm a vampire, I was like, oh, God, I know I don't. I'm not interested. Um... <laughs> We're talking about the period. Yeah, section, yeah, yeah. Yes. But it's just like okay. the way that he like growls, I'm a vampire is just like, I can't. <laughs> I feel like I can't. One one of the best moments of the film. Disagree. Um. <laughs> Tori and I anyway. I'm trying to think like who <laughs> But you know who needs to watch Saltburn? Stan. <laughs> <laughs> That's who needs that fits. That fits with my answer to this question. I think the person in the Americans verse who is most able to appreciate Saltburn is the one and only Oyek. I think that that's right. Yeah. I, I think that I wasn't thinking appreciate. I was thinking either identify with or learn from. And so okay. I think identify with is Clark and Martha like that before before the wig reveal. So like pre. Fair. And then. Fair. But, like, learn from, like, get a little bit more, like, debaucherous in, in like, one's existence. Like, Stan needs that. I agree. Um, Oye, I think, would always... So, surprising no one. And actually, maybe there's an... Ep- this was the other episode. Maybe there's an episode about Saltburn uh, that exists in the feed I don't feed know if before. I can talk about Saltburn for an extended period of time. Just because I'm not sure that I have anything to say about it. You're like, I okay. only so anyway, have things to say about it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a Saltburn pod now. Um, <laughs> we didn't see it surprisingly, together. We didn't see it together. <laughs> Regan Levitt and I went to go see Saltburn together and both fucking loved it. Um, I saw it with Tori and we were, we walked out of there being like, well, that was an experience. (laughs) And somebody, an incredible mind bending experience. I think this is part um, of why I, unlike anything else, I texted John and I was like, I don't know. It felt like kind of predictable. And John's response was, I, that's like not how I view movies. And so I wasn't thinking about that. And I'm not sure that it's always how I'm thinking about it, but we walked out of there and some like 
four different groups of people, like, as we're walking out. And we saw it in the same theater that you and I saw Barbie and Oppenheimer in. Nice. And the Beyonce movie was playing next door, but it was playing in the, like, Dolby theater. So you could hear the Beyonce concert the entire time Saltburn was playing, which was a whole thing. But four different groups of people were like, oh, my God, the twist. And I look at Tori and I'm like, are we just smarter than everyone? Or is everyone in this, like, like... Oh, like, the fact that... Okay, spoilers ahead yeah, for Saltburn. spoilers for Saltburn. The fact... The fact that, like, he killed them all, like, is incidental to the film. A hundred percent. And, like, okay, the, like, first ten minutes where he's, like, not, it's, like, not as obvious. I feel like the minute the movie gets, really gets going, it's, like, so clear what's happening. Even if you're not aware of all the different pieces of the map. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like, for whatever reason, I was like, well, he's definitely the reason that, like, they're kicking Farley out of the house. I'm like, well, clearly Oliver's, like, the reason why Farley's getting kicked out. I don't know exactly how, but, like, uh, obviously, yeah. right? Like, there are just all of these pieces, and but, like, all these different groups are like, oh my god, the twist. And it's like, is everybody in Boston a fucking idiot? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> Shots at Boston. I mean... Um, and, uh, I mean... Okay, so that was not at all the level on which Regan and I were engaging yeah, with yeah, the yeah, film yeah, yeah. Saltburn is like the plot level. But I I felt so fucking alive after seeing that movie. Like Regan and I got in the car to drive back to Plattsburgh for it's just at, at just outside of Plattsburgh is the movie theater, Cumberland Twelve, love. Danielle's familiar. I love it. Um and uh we're like, well obviously we're gonna crank some MGMT as loud as we can in the car and sing along to every fucking word. Never um, listen to it. <laughs> Yeah, but like that's it's such it's such the perfect uh, perfect song for that movie. And then obviously, murder on the dance yeah. floor. Um, what font did you choose? That's been one of my yes, favorite lines I, um, like, from Saltburn. There, I I quite enjoyed it, but I wasn't like this is a life changing movie. But I also didn't feel like that about like Promising Young Woman either. Like there, you know, yeah. like I don't know. This is like I. Oh, I felt it about Saltburn much more than Promising Young Woman. Although I did enjoy yeah, Promising yeah, Young same. Woman more than most, I think. I enjoyed yeah. Promising Young Woman. I mean, like, the last time I felt like this is alive from a movie. Barbenheimer? The experience of seeing both of them together with you, yes. But, like, n- neither movie is a movie where I, like, feel like I have to go back to. And I think that's the, like, the version of I Feel Alive is, like, a, I I need to keep watching this until it seeps into my soul. And I, I like, yeah. I would have to think, I would have to think about the last movie that, like, made me feel like that. And probably it was, like, I don't know, something dumb, like sleeping with other people or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's not like Saltburn is like the best movie no, of no, the no. year, or even a good movie. It's just that, like that is that is fucking why we. Sorry to be all Sean Fantasy about it. Like this is why we fucking do it. <laughs> like this is why people make movies is to like fuck you up and play with your emotions and do aesthetically fascinating things, um, and just like really immerse you in a totally. Uh, unreal experience. Yeah, and I wonder if, like, part of what I am feeling about Saltburn is actually what I'm not feeling about it, which is, like, I, l- like, listen, there are certainly scenes in that movie where I was like, why is this happening? But I don't know that I was, like, fucked up from it, right? Like, I wasn't, yeah. like, deeply affected by it. 
in in a way uh-huh. that I think like I think that you were right like so this just yeah. it it didn't hit me on that level though I don't really know if like that's the way that I experience movies right yeah yeah, I think that that's probably true. As I'm recalling back to our infamous uh, aesthetic debate um, <laughs> uh, early in our podcasting days. Um, okay, I've I've one more Saltburn Americans crossover question. Great. Love. Uh, which Americans character would be most likely to? I fuck knew a grave? that this was the question you were going to ask. <laughs> like a hundred percent knew it. Um, and like it might be Oleg again. It, I don't know that we know enough about Oleg to know whether or not that's I, one. I think it would be like circum, it would be the circumstances of it. So like, Oleg is certainly the most likely to like fuck uh, Nina's grave. Like, I was gonna say, you send Oleg to Moscow 100%. right now to the unmarked 100%. grave of Nina. Hundred percent. Like it's but, all like, over. Philip is the kind of fucked up that I feel like he would fuck his son's grave. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> Too much. I don't know what you're saying at all. <laughs> but I love it. That 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 is what. That is what the brilliance of Saltburn is, right there encapsulated in the, like, I have no fucking clue what that just was, and yet I am so deeply <laughs> here for it that I'm embracing it with my fullest core self. Oh my god, I, like, I need somebody who listens to this episode to give us their honest feedback on, like, what the fuck is going on. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> Oh my god, I can't breathe. John, if you're still listening. <laughs> we have to come to the end of the... I have to go to sleep. Gotta be fucking... Like, I, ha- yes, we've been talking about Saltburn for half an hour. This is more time than I've spent oh, on Saltburn. I'm well aware. <laughs> you're like, I could go for another half an hour. Like, please let it stop. <laughs> I would... I, if Regan and I talked about doing a podcast about it, and I was like, oh, I would think Danielle's maybe going to see it too. But like, if Regan was like, should we record a podcast right now? I would have done it. Fair. Like, immediately. Listen, I'm, I'm in... Because this has been very enjoyable, and, like, it is hard for anything to be enjoyable at 1043 at night for me. There's a very small amount of things, and podcasting is not usually one of them. Um, We'll leave it to your imagination to what the the things are. But I think we got to – I think we've made – I am forcing us to be at the end of the episode, thanks to producer Amy, who we've interpolated into at least a Saltburn podcast – um up next in the feed in two weeks and our business ventures. oh yeah and our business ventures like uh, tm <laughs> stay tuned um up next in the feed in two weeks you'll have american season four episode seven travel agents where we will hopefully finally see the death of martha but you know no promises um wow. and thank you again for joining us on another wild episode of not quite great books a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It's created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. 
we would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.